Church family, turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 1. As we've already looked at, Romans 1, 1 through 17 is Paul's introduction to this book. We we looked at Paul's authority last week in verses 1 through 7. We're going to look at Paul's heart this morning in verses 8 through 15. And then we'll look at Paul's gospel next week in verses 16 through 17. What I want to do is read the whole passage to you, Romans 1, 1 through 17. And just tell you we'll be focusing on verses 8 through 15 this morning. This is the word of the Lord. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request if by some means now at last I am able to find a way in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gifts so that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith both of you and me. Now I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's go to the Lord and thank Him for His word. Father, You are good and have given us a good word. Lord, suitable, perfect, consoling, encouraging, and comforting. All in all of the difficulty and turmoil of this life before us. Lord, my prayer is that you would speak to us by your word this morning. Would you, what would you weaken us so that we're ready to both speak it and hear it in the strength which you supply? We ask that you would pour out your spirit among us now. Bring your ministry as counselor and comforter to your people. We pray that you would do this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. In Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 15, what we really see here is a picture of a gospel-formed heart. Again, in Romans 1, 1 through 17, the Apostle Paul is basically saying to these Roman Christians, I want to tell you the gospel and you can trust me to do so. Again, you have to remember, he he had not yet met these Romans They haven't seen the the tears fall from his eyes. They didn't see his chin quiver when he was with them. He was a stranger to them. We all know what it's like when we meet a stranger. We don't instinctively trust strangers. Paul was a stranger to these Romans. And so verses 1, 1 through 7, he says, I have real authority. I'm coming to you from God. You can trust me. And then in verses 8 through 15 this morning, he says, you should listen to me. I'm coming from God and I love you. He shows us a gospel heart. He shows us the kind of heart that ministers the gospel. Make no mistake about it, beloved. The gospel is not effective just when it comes as a perfectly positioned worldview, a foolproof argument, or as a gloriously coherent set of doctrines. The gospel wins people as it comes through transformed hearts. And so Paul is going to show us a picture here of a transformed heart. 
The kind of heart that he has is the chariot the gospel wants to ride into people's lives on. So the Apostle Paul is showing us his heart. He says, you can trust me. All of these glorious gospel doctrines I'm going to unfold for you. You can believe it. I love you because I've been transformed by it myself. You can trust me. And I would say, as we think this morning just about the challenges we face for caring for a local church, it would be encouraging for us to be people with gospel-shaped hearts. Even in our community, we will need to be people with gospel-shaped hearts. And I'll go ahead and tell you, there will be several parts that's coming later where, where I'm writing to myself, and you'll know it. Why? Because pastors of all people should be encouraged to have gospel-shaped hearts. So we'll just pretend like I'm in therapy at that point, and you guys are just listening to all of my problems. Um, all right. Thank you, Bob. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this. I love this quote, by the way. He says... I can forgive the preacher almost anything if he gives me the sense of God. That sense of God comes from God on the gospel touching the heart. And so in Paul, what we're going to see here are four characteristics of a gospel-formed heart. You see this there in verse 8. The first one is that a gospel-formed heart is a thankful heart. A gospel-formed heart is a thankful heart. Right out of his mouth. First off, Paul says, I thank my God. First, I thank Him. That's where I want to start. Look at verse 8 with me. He says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. See, Paul begins with thanksgiving, but Paul does not just do this here in the book of Romans. He does this repeatedly. It's one of the defining marks of the Pauline letters in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4. He's going to go speak to one of the most messed up churches in the entire New Testament. I mean, have you read 1 Corinthians lately? They're, they're pretty jacked up. And, and yet many of us would never, if the job was open, go past through the Corinthians if we were offered it. Yet Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 4, I thank my God always Concerning you for the grace of God, which was given to you by Christ Jesus. Then in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 16, he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, even though the Ephesians would later need to be told not to steal, not to lie, not to be so malicious, not to be so mean. He says to them, I do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Paul had a thankful heart, and that, that's a rare heart, isn't it? Especially in our day. Many of you might know this, but we, for Christmas, uh, bought annual passes to Disney World for our children. Um, terrible idea. But, uh, no, it's been great. Uh, so this past Monday, we ended up going down to Animal Kingdom. And we took our kids there just for the day and drove back. And it was a wonderful day. So many entertainment opportunities. We're driving back, and there's a little boy in our family. I'm sure you know him. Uh, he's in the back seat of our car, and he, on the way home, says, Dad, what time are we going to get home tonight? And I said, well, Bub, we'll, we'll be home right about 8.15. And he said, well, can we watch TV when we get home? And I said, no, you're going to bed. And then I, I hear this, oh. And I think, you have just been offered more entertainment in a day than you could bargain for. You literally watched a dude swallow fire and spit it back out. Like you had a giraffe come up to your face, bro. Like this day is full of entertainment and your response is, if I can't watch TV, it's been a waste. Listen, this, this is 
a clear indication that we are in need of thankful hearts. See, there's this thanklessness that goes deep into our human hearts. Even when, listen, even in our culture, listen, when you see the tragedy around us, particularly in in sexual morality that runs throughout this entire culture, you may ask, you may look around and see the things that we're seeing that 20 years ago we never even thought possible to see. And you may ask this question, how did we get here? I'll tell you how we got here. It's a lack of a thankful heart. Paul tells us in Romans 1 that men did not glorify God, neither did they give Him thanks. Therefore, He handed them over to their perversion. When your heart is not thankful for what God gives, it's grasping for what He doesn't give. Of course, the problem is is not just the, the problem out there in the world. We live, of course, in a radically twisted world these days, but the reality is... Far be it from us to look at all the vileness and sexually immoral in the place outside. If we do that, we need to honestly ask ourselves this question. Have we, have we ever looked at pornography? Friends, it's the exact same desire to have what you want, when you want, in the way you want it. Now, at this point, without any contentment whatsoever, that comes from a lack of... Of a thankful heart. But here in this thankless world, Paul is thankful. Of all things, he's thankful for imperfect churches. Listen, Paul in his ministry, he didn't get a beach property on the Mediterranean and go, man, I'm just blessed. Hashtag, right? Like, I'm thankful. Life's good. What can I say? God loves me. No. He got churches. He got lots of churches. And he got a lot of them with really huge problems. And yet he says, I want to say thank you. And actually, he says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ. He doesn't say, I thank you, Romans. You're a cut above the rest of the people in the ancient world. No, he thanks God because Paul recognizes that everything required to save someone and make them a Christian comes from God. God chose them. God sent his son to die for them. God sends his spirit to keep them. God's the one who gives his word to guide them. And so God is the one who gets all the glory. And Paul was amazed by these Romans because their faith is being spoken of throughout the whole world, but it's not to their credit. It's to God's glory. So, Do you see the God-centeredness of Paul's thankfulness? Paul is thankful to God because of what he has created in these Roman Christians. And I want to suggest to you, church family, that, that we should be a thankful people this morning. I mean, the Lord has given us much, hasn't he? The Lord is, listen, the Lord has taken many of us home. He's taken many from us home. But, but even in our grief, in our heartache, we can be thankful. We see Him working. Even in the midst of our imperfections, the pain and heartache that sin can cause, we can be thankful. Each of us can thank God for every single day that we're given. And, and also, let me, let me just encourage you. Not to underestimate the ability of thankfulness to be the thing that sustains you. This is one of those parts that's for me. But this has just been something that's so enlightening. I, lo- I, love, I love pastoring. It is, it is such a gift consistently to know that this is what God has called me to do. And I, I get to be uh, with you as our family in pastoring. But honestly, sometimes pastoring is just, is just brutal. The problem is there's all these people involved, you know. 
they keep sinning and they keep suffering. And then on top of that, like, I keep sinning and I keep suffering. And I'm, like, barely above water dealing my own stuff. And called to deal with you and all. And so, look, then, then the other part is I had a, a dear friend this week say, well, you know, when, when you work outside of the church and you're in counseling appointments, does that get to take off from your office time? And I said, yeah, absolutely. The problem is there's this thing called Sunday, and it's just always coming around the corner, right? This is like it's with alarming regularity that Sunday just approaches almost every seven days, right? Uh, so it, it is, listen, I, I've known this job to kill and wear down the strongest men. And, and then when a church goes through even a Corinthian season, there are, there are times you may feel like you can't make it another step. But it's at that time where in all honesty, I've got to look at myself and say, you know what? I'm not in hell. I, I deserve to be, but I'm not. I'm, I'm a pastor. In fact, I should be the person that this person is sharing with. I, I should be the person that people are trying to rescue from the pit of hell. But instead, by God's marvelous grace, I believe the gospel. I've trusted in Christ. I'm saved. And then of all the things in the world, I've been given the responsibility over people who have the Spirit and are showing wonderful, marvelous signs of the first fruits of every sign that they're going to heaven. In the reality, on the best days, ministry is great. And on the worst days, ministry is still glorious and something to be thankful for. But as you know, we believe in the priesthood of all believers. And so as ministry should be great for the pastor, it also should be great for the people. It, thankfulness will sustain you in the most mundane of tasks done to the glory of God. The reality is we should be thankful for the things that we have. And in that, thankfulness should sustain us. I would just add for your own personal application. The same could be said for any Christian. We, we love to sing the song, All I Have is Christ, don't we? One of my favorite all-time songs. It's, it's beautiful because the reality is, in this life, if the Lord has given you turmoil, loss, pain, and suffering in this life, but at the end of the day, you are assured that the risen Savior is reigning over your heart and life, that He has secured an eternal weight of glory for you, then, my friend, you have much to be thankful for. Not only does the gospel make a thankful heart, however, it makes a prayerful heart. Look at verses 9 and 10 of our text. The gospel makes a thankful heart, but it also makes a prayerful heart. For God is my witness, Paul says, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of the Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request, if by some means now at last I may find a will, or find a way in the will of God to come to you. A gospel-formed heart makes a prayerful heart. Did you notice this? Paul is a praying man. But the number one person who knows that Paul is a praying man is God. God is the primary witness of Paul's prayer life. This is an important word for a church that values corporate prayer as much as we do. Remember, the Lord Jesus warned us not to be like the Pharisees who, who emphasize the effects of what praying in front of others will do. It'll get you a reward. You'll look spiritual. You'll look holy. But the primary eyes we should be concerned about in our prayer meetings and in our prayer closets are the eyes of God. So let me ask you this question this morning. Does God know you to be a praying man? 
Does God know you to be a woman of prayer? What is God's witness of your prayer life? You say, well, I have to build a career, a home, I have to provide. Yes, you do, but not at the expense of prayer. The great Hudson Taylor said, Do not be so busy that you cannot work hard in prayer, for prayer is hard work. The first place we are to serve God is in our spirits. Paul says in the text, For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit. He's not just serving out with his hands or out of the travels of his feet, but in his spirit, this inner man, he communes with God. He pleads to God. He asks God for those things which concern the advance of his kingdom. The main place he serves God is where nowhere else, no one else can see but God can witness. He says he does it in the gospel of his son. This is so important. Because this is what happens. Look, when you, when you get alone in that closet and it's just you, your spirit, and God, let's be honest, that can become a very miserable place, can it? Because it's in that prayer closet where it's just you and your spirit and God where the devil reminds you of every sin you've ever committed when you weren't in that closet. He will remind you of everything that you have left undone. He'll remind you of everything you've poorly done. He'll remind you of the sins of your youth. He'll remind you of the sins you're tempted of. He will do everything to crush your ministry in your spirit. But listen to me. You are the one who ministers in the gospel of his son. That is, you minister in the reality that Jesus Christ has given good news even for a soul like yours. He has taken away the sins of your youth. He will protect you from the sins of old age. He will wipe away all your record of having done anything ever wrong. And so when the devil comes to you and says, you're so wicked and you're so prayerless, you're so undeserving to be here before God, you answer with Martin Luther and say, that's exactly right. And I'm coming to the Lord in the gospel of his son. The one who is good enough, the one who is spiritual enough, right enough, loving enough, sacrificial enough, and holy enough to plead my cause before you. I'm not coming to God to tell him what a great prayer warrior I am. I'm pronouncing to the Lord of hosts that I come in the name and only in the name of your son. And so you can do spiritual ministry in the name of your son. Don't let any devil tell you any lie that says that you cannot. The ministry we're called to is a ministry... Of the Spirit, it's a ministry of prayer. Notice, notice, listen, notice the applied difficulty in our lives of prayer. This is so helpful for everyone. He says at the end of verse 9, the beginning of verse 10, he says, Always in my prayers, making request, if by some means, now, at last, I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. Does Paul hint here there's been a lack of success in any way, shape, or form? Paul hints that he has not gotten what he wants yet, even in his prayers. I'm hoping that now, at last, these things I'm praying for, listen, I want them to happen eventually. He speaks more to this in verse 13 when he says, I often planned to come to you that was hindered, but that was hindered until now. So Paul's in a prayer meeting. He says, Lord, can I go to Rome? Nope. Travel plans broke down. Well, Lord, can I go to Rome? I know this is a a good and right thing for me to go to Rome. No. Didn't work out. Had to go to church in Corinth. Lord, can I go to Rome? No. Everything is getting in the way of this opportunity. And, And here, by the way, remember who Paul is. 
He's the apostle to the Gentiles who wants the whole planet to know Jesus. Where do you think he wants to go? The capital city of the world. He wants to go there and strengthen that church and he can't get there. Well, you know what? He should have been praying. He is praying. He should have been praying more. He's praying constantly. And even though he's praying continually, God is not granting success to his prayers. God is holding him back from answered prayer. And I want to tell you something this morning. The the whole Christian life really is a beautiful and painful mixture of glorious answered prayers walking right beside glorious unanswered prayers. But... Don't quit praying because you seem to constantly come across being prevented from the answer to your prayers. In fact, there's an amazing illustration of this. Many in your Bibles, if you're like mine, the book of Romans is on this side. Right? Which means on this side is the book of Acts. And the end of the book of Acts. Right? Maybe you have to turn one page. If you do, I'm sorry this illustration doesn't work for you. But what's interesting is if you look at the very end of the book of Acts, you know how Acts ends? Paul gets to Rome. But Paul gets to Rome as a prisoner in shackles. He actually receives an escort from the government to Rome. Then they put him under house arrest where he spends all kinds of time preaching the gospel. This was probably not the answer to prayer that Paul had in mind. Maybe he was thinking of like a little nice cruise ship, a little walk around the Mediterranean, get to Rome, preach the gospel there. Instead, God has Paul rested in Jerusalem and escorted as a prisoner all the way to Rome so he can appeal to Caesar. Listen, beloved. God answers our prayers exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all we ask and imagine. But he also answers them often much more painfully and brutally than we ever dared to dream. This is a good reminder for any of us who may be in a season of hurt. Maybe you've prayed for healing. Maybe you've prayed for your children to know the Lord. Maybe you've prayed for your family to be a light and beacon of truth. See, when we pray these sorts of things, we just instinctively think... That, that these prayers will involve us being there to the answers of those prayers. We, we tend to think we are necessary to the circumstances of God answering our prayers. But God is not constrained by our sense of what the right circumstances for answered prayers are to be. You pray according to the eternal will of God. And don't be shaken by any way he shakes circumstances to answer his own holy will. Why? Because he is good and sovereign all the time. The gospel heart is a thankful heart. The gospel heart is a prayerful heart. The gospel formed heart is also an encouraging heart. Gospel formed heart is an encouraging heart. Here's why Paul wants to get to Rome. Look at verses 11 and 12 of our text. He says, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift, so that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. This is really remarkable. 
I love this. Paul, Paul wants to get to Rome because he wants to give them a spiritual gift. I, I can imagine for Paul to come to Rome with a spiritual gift would mean he's coming to preach to them. And let me just tell you, in my study and preparation already, there's a lot of really great preaching on the book of Romans. John Piper, Martin Lloyd-Jones, Sinclair Ferguson. I'm going to go ahead and just put my bets now on the best preaching ever on the ideas of Romans coming from the Apostle Paul. <laughs> right? Can you imagine? Hey, I heard Paul's coming to your church. What's he doing? Oh, he's just, he's just going to unpack some of those spiritual truths that he wrote in a letter. Get me there, right? That's, that's incredible. He says, I want to get there with a spiritual gift to you. I want to build you up, establish you in the gospel. But what I want you to notice especially is the humility of this man. He will not be understood to be a man who gives one-way blessings. He does not view himself as the one flying in with all the spiritual gifts, handing out every single one of the blessings. Look at verse 11 again. He says, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift, so that you may be established. And then he has to catch himself. right? He, he doesn't want to be misunderstood here. So he goes on in verse 12 and says, That is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith of both you and me. The author of the book of Romans wants to go and be blessed by people who haven't even read Romans yet. Right? Like, think about how raw their theology is. The theologian of theologians wants to go to a people barely introduced to theology and experience God's blessing from their spiritual gifts. That's remarkable. In fact, he tells them in Romans 15, and you'll remember, by the time they get to Romans 15, they've only read the book of Romans once, right? He says to them in Romans 15, 14, he says, Now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able to admonish one another. Let me just tell you, church family, we have, we have many opportunities for service in our church. One of our core tenets of the local church is to be a church that worship grows, and serves. We, we have, have many opportunities, from, from holding babies to teaching a grow class to all the in-between. And my simple prayer for us is that we would have this exact same mentality consistently every week when we are able to, administer, to minister to the Lord's body. But, but I'll also say again, second part, I think this is the last one that just applies to me and Justin. Justin, I need you to come down front and center. Oh, no, I'm kidding. Um, it, it starts with your pastor's. And so we're, I'm going to apply this to myself because I need to hear it. I, I do not arrive at this church as the gift. You arrive as a gift. A gift. And there's a humility that pervades the church when the pastors recognize that they are one of the gifts in the body, not the gifts to the body. There's a humility in ministry in a life that occurs when the whole body recognizes we have spiritual gifts to minister to one another. When everyone who walks in a room says, I want to be here to bless and encourage you, but I am just as much here to be encouraged by you. It changes the whole dynamic and character of the life of a local church. It really does. So we must have that encouragement heart. Do you view yourself that way? Do you see your service not only as a, a gift to the church, but as an opportunity to receive a gift from the church? 
pray that you do. A gospel-formed heart is a thankful heart. It's a prayerful heart. It's an encouraging heart. And then lastly, the gospel-formed heart is an obligated heart. Obligated. This is where the Greek kind of gets in the way a little bit. Um, but let's look at verse 13. Verse 13 says, Now I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. Um, Then verse 14, right? I'm a debtor. Now this word debtor, in verse 14, it it carries with it under obligation, right? So so ESV, I think, has obligated, or uh, whether you choose debtor, indebted, obligated, or under obligation, none of those words we like very much. Right, those are all, none of those are winners for us. But, but it, it's a biblical word. It's here. So we've got to learn to love it. Because if you get a biblical word that you don't like, the problem's with you. <laughs> I say that in love. He wants to see some spiritual fruit. And I, I imagine that spiritual fruit is probably conversions in Rome, but, but also probably it's just growth in Christian grace among these Roman Christians. Look what he says in verse 14. He says, I'm a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and unwise. So, as much as is in me, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. Paul viewed himself as a man who was obligated to preach the gospel. The gospel was for him not simply a can-do, but a must-do. It was a requirement, an obligation, laid upon him by the resurrected Lord of the universe. Now listen to me, every Christian, every Christian is obligated to share the gospel. Just just go through it. Your co-workers, your family, your friends, your neighbors, social media friends, kids, spouse, place that biblical word indebted, obligated on all that. You must. But I want you to hear this too. The obligation that Paul's speaking about here is not a grinding legalism. It's not a command that will drive you into the dust with its burden. It's not like you you must, even though you don't want to. Like, Like you really, really hate it, but you really must. You're indebted. You're obligated. No, Paul says, I'm a debtor. And he says, I'm ready. He's eager. Verse 14 again. I'm a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. And so he's just going through all the kinds of people in the world. I'm obligated to all of them and debted to all of them. Verse 15. So as much as is in me, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. What is it that makes this obligation an eager and ready obligation instead of a life-killing, life-sucking obligation? First, it's who the obligation comes from. You you are indebted. You must preach that Jesus died for sinners. Says the one who paid the debt for your soul. Says the one who saved you. The obligation comes from the one who loved us and gave himself for us. The obligation comes from the one who tells us we are called saints and beloved by God. But not only that, the obligation is not to preach a powerless gospel. We become ready to preach the gospel when we understand just how powerful the gospel is. Look at this again, verse 14. 
I'm a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, but the wise and the unwise, so as much as is in me, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. Also, verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Friends, the gospel is not useless. It takes people who are sinful little children, saves them, sanctifies them, and makes them into the glory of Christ. It is not a powerless gospel, and yet we often treat it as it's such. So if you're sitting here believing the gospel this morning, your faith is being right now upheld by the power of this very Savior. And the truth of the matter is, is if He can save you, He can save anybody. Because you, friend, were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were not seeking God because there's none who seeks God, no, not one. And now here you are. And and, and where do you want to go on a Sunday morning? Here in church. Friend, you're not just weird. You're born again. You've been transformed. God's done a work. That is the very power of the gospel. That you who were once racked with guilt learned the lesson that Christ gives a righteousness when you have none of your own. And you said, yes. I want that. Don't doubt for a minute that he can do it again. But rather, savor it and go as one obligate, go as a ready debtor to share it with everyone you can. You are called to proclaim the gospel to every kind of person in this community, every color, every background, every ethnicity, not just those who are like you or are naturally like your church culture, but to everyone who is dead in their sins and in need of a savior, you're called to preach the gospel. Church, you don't know, if we learn anything from from the weeks around us in the last couple of years, you do not know if you have tomorrow with any of your friends who you are thinking about sharing the gospel with right now. None of us know. Life is a vapor. So when the Spirit prompts you, do not delay. When you're prompted to share His gospel of grace, He will save by it. And listen, if he doesn't save by it, oh, it will still be such a salvation for your soul that you're preaching in an obedience to him. It'll be you working out your salvation with fear and trembling. And so, beloved, let us praise God and thank him for his glorious gospel. Let us be prayerful for each other. Let us seek to encourage those who are in need. Let's remind ourselves that we are obligated, indebted to preach the gospel because life can pass in an instant. Guard your heart. Keep it close to the gospel that you might be sustained by a thankful heart. Empowered by a prayerful heart. That you might be a blessing in service because you have an encouraging heart. That you might spread salvation by an obligated heart. Praise be to God. What we're going to do now is we're going to take a moment of silence to respond to this gospel message. I know that sounds like an oxymoron. How do you respond in silence? Well, in your spirit, right? Be encouraged. Apply it. Ask yourself that very question. If this is the the picture of a gospel-formed heart, where do I line up? Certainly, uh, the Apostle Paul is different from us in some ways, that he was called to be an apostle. But Apostle Paul was, he didn't have a different nature. Right? Listen, he didn't do any of this perfectly. But this this is the orientation of his heart. Is it the orientation of yours? Is the gospel forming your heart to be oh so thankful for all that God has given? And I don't mean your stuff. I mean his son. I mean his eternal salvation and his son. Do you need more than that? 
to be thankful? If you're in Christ, your eternity is secure, friend. That should be enough. Be thankful for a son. And not only that, but be a, be a prayerful heart. Have a prayerful heart. Understand that the Lord will answer your prayers, even if it's not the way you saw fit. But rely on Him anyways. Be an encouragement in the service of church. We talked about this in Sunday school. The local church is such a wonderful avenue in which we are to hone the gifts that we've been given by God for His glory. How are you being an encouragement to somebody else? And how has this church and these ministries been encouraging to you? Let somebody know that. Right? We will be strengthened together as a church as we're aware of the encouragements we give constantly to one another. And then friends, are you obligated? Do you feel the pull? And I don't mean a pull is in such a burden where the Lord will not love you if you do not share the gospel. But friends, the obligation to understand because from whom much is given, much is required. And you've been given eternal life. Therefore, you are required and obligated to share eternal life. How serious are you taking the opportunity to share the gospel with your friends and neighbors? Whatever the Lord's calling you to do as a Christian, that we have this gospel-formed heart, I want to give you time to respond to that, to ask Him to help you and encourage you. But if you're here this morning and you've never received the Lord Jesus Christ, you have no idea what we're talking about when we say gospel. Let me share with you very quickly that we believe that God created this world and everything in it, that He, he rules over it sovereignly as our King, and He created you in His image. Therefore, He owns you. He rules over you as Lord and Master. But the problem is that, that we as a, as, a, as a species, as humankind, we have sinned and rebelled against this God. We have declared that we do not want God to be owner over us, to be master of all the universe that He's created. We instead want to be our own rulers. So we reject the good and righteous God for for sin and things that lead to more sin. And yet the problem is is that you and I were created with this God-shaped hole in our heart that can only be filled by His presence. And so all these things that we try to do on our own, we find lacking consistently. We, We think they may find us temporary happiness for a season, but we recognize that that's only for a season and not for eternity. And we were created for much more. So in this, God is calling you and to, to understand that you were created for a relationship with Him. And the reality is, you are in a relationship with Him. Even now. But right now, it's a relationship where a holy God must, must have holy justice against you as a lawbreaker. That's not good news for you. Right? The reality is, if you were to die based on your own merit, on being good enough and doing enough, that you would fail miserably. And that justice would have to be carried out from a good, righteous, holy God upon you. But the reality is God in His grace and mercy has made a way to pay for our sin. And it is in the precious life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension of His Son. He sent Jesus to be a a fully obedient God-man. Fully God, fully man. Where you have broken God's law, Jesus never did. And yet... He went to the cross willingly to take upon Himself the wrath of a holy God that your sin has earned. But in the midst of that, He gives to those who believe His perfect righteousness, His perfect stance before the Lord so that God the Father can look upon you and see you as not sinning even though you sin all the time. But why? It's because the righteousness and the payment of His Son has covered you. 
And all you must do in response to that is, is repent, declare yourself no longer king of your own universe, ruler, but, but acknowledge the king of the universe being God and seek to follow him. Turn away from living your life with you at the center and living with Christ at the center, wanting to follow his, bands, his commands, having a heart that's challenged by his word, that wants to be drawn close to him, that wants to be in relationship with him as that heart hole, uh, the gospel-shaped hole in your heart is filled. But it's not just that. It's, it's believing and trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. That, that's it. What Christ has done on the cross has satisfied the wrath of God. That it's no longer about you being good enough to enter into his gates. It's about Christ being good enough and he's done it. It's complete and satisfied him. So so look, you you rest in the gospel. That's what it means to believe. That means when, when life's turmoil and difficulties get you down, you recognize I'm okay because I'm in Christ. When you face the, the, the pains of this world, when you're, you're shaken beyond it, even when you fall, even when you don't believe as well as you should, even when you don't obey as well as you should, you have peace beyond understanding. Why? Because Christ has covered it. It's already been done. He's already paid for it, past, present, and future sins. Friends, if you would today, simply call upon this Lord. Ask Him to bring you repentance, a change of heart, and to believe on His work, then you today, can have the beginnings of a gospel-formed heart. And then you get to be a part of a local church where you are grown and encouraged and challenged every day to fill that gospel-shaped heart with a heart of thankfulness, heart of encouragement, heart of prayerfulness, and a heart that's obligated to take this good news and share it to others. Let's have a moment of silence now, and then we'll pray. Father, we recognize, Lord, how lacking we are, and yet, oh, we recognize your grace. Father, we recognize this as a grace. Father, to hear your word, to be encouraged by your truth. Father, I pray that it would be a grace to our ears, to those who know you, or that we would so desire this. Father, we would continue to dwell and think upon your word as those who've been transformed by your grace. Lord, our hearts would really show fruits of being thankful, prayerful, encouraging, and obligated to proclaim. Lord, where we fall short, may we not be content. Even knowing that your grace is covered, even been freed from the guilt of sin, Lord, let us strive evermore to obey you because you're worthy. For anyone who's here this morning, who maybe even in this moment is aware of their own sinfulness and need for you, Lord, I pray that they would simply call out to you as Savior. They would ask you to change their heart. Would you convict them of their sin? They confess it. They'd repent and trust in you. Thank you for the gift of your local church and for your word. As we sing this song of response, may our hearts be filled with joy because of your great, great, glorious gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.